0: Thank you so much, Pastor Mark, for that prayer of supplication, and I'm grateful for each of you. each of you that are here today and uh, your presence and your' providing me the opportunity to preach from God's word before I do, and before you take your attention away from the prayer list, let me just uh, call a couple more names uh, that uh, came to my mind that we want to add to our friends and family, if you will, uh, Add the name of Myron, that's M Y R O N Drowham, D R O U H A M, Myron Drowham. D-R-O-U-H-A-M, uh, uh, just underwent a uh, kidney transplant. I'm assuming this is a friend of Marjorie Angel's, possibly a relative. And then also, if you would, add the name of Steve Swicord, S W I C O R D, and that's uh, a nephew of Janice Levinson's who is uh, battling prostate cancer. And then if you want to add, uh, go ahead, Add uh, Joyce Murray, uh, M-U-R-R-A-Y, Joyce Murray. Uh, this is Theresa Coleman's mother who is in ICU at Forsyth Hospital. So uh, just some additional names. I want to make sure that you know about these. And then a quick infomercial. We had a delightful representative from the Baptist Ch- North Carolina Baptist Children's Home come by uh, the Wednesday morning while we were doing Companions. And she was so delightful and invited us to come down again and be interacting with the uh, kids there at the Thomasville Children's Home. But she dropped off this nice little booklet here. I'm going to leave it on the information desk. But these are poems that are written by the children who are residents of the different Baptist children's homes. And, and you get a glimpse into their hearts and their perspective and their mind. So, you know, when you're standing out there and you're just waiting around, uh, open it up and read a few of the poems. I think you'll enjoy Uh, these wonderful words of inspiration from these young boys and girls and teenagers. As you turn your Bibles to our primary text this morning, the Gospel of Luke chapter 4 we will be beginning there in chapter, in verse 1. Back on March the 2nd, we witnessed the successful testing of the SpaceX spaceship. SpaceX is a commercial uh, version of NASA, if you will, Space Exploration Company and Of course, their whole venture is to one day maybe have a a, a, a whole team going to, say, Mars or something like that. But for right now, they're looking into helping NASA once again get to to be able to take astronauts from Earth to the space station, the International Space Station. So on March the 2nd, they launched I Had a successful launching of their SpaceX space spaceship that was on the on board of a, uh, a two stage uh, Falcon rocket, and on March the third, it successfully, you probably saw this in the news, docked with the International Space Station. So this was this was just a great uh, a victory, if you will, accomplishment, uh, but uh, also. While in route, the the spaceship. I thought it was interesting. It, it, it was it was occupied, but not by humans, because this was a testing, and they'd done a number of tests. But on board, they had a a smart dummy. That's kind of like an oxymoron. But anyway, they had a robotic astronaut that was a smart dummy. It measured all the pressure ca- cabin pressures and all the g forces and everything that needed to be measured by you know that so that when they get ready to launch. The, uh, the, the manned version, which I think may be coming up in the summer, and it'll hold like seven astronauts, I think. They call it the SpaceX Dragon rocket. But, but the whole idea was the, that this launch, the connection with the space station, the, the undocking, and then return to Earth on March the 8th, all was successful. And so this opens the way uh, for the United States to once again be able to send our astronauts directly from American soil and not have to hitch a ride with the Russians, uh, which is not always a good thing to do, and, uh, and be able to send our own astronauts up to space. But what I'm saying is this highly technical feat was accomplished only at the, a series of very intense and, and, and rigorous tests to, to make this uh, happen before ultimate success. And, you know, as we read the scripture record, we find that God oftentimes will, will take his people or allow his people to go through intense times of testing. Uh, you know, designed to help to, to demonstrate the, the, the completeness of their faith, the strength of their faith. And, you know, when you think about it, all the way back to the first book uh, in, the, in the Bible, in Genesis, in chapter 3, we find that God is testing the faith of adam and eve now they were perfect perfect creations of god and yet he allowed them to be tested tempted by the adversary the devil and of course we know the result in in chapter three of genesis and, and we know that of course they failed the test and of course with that the fall into sin but but that's not the only time you know god uh, allows his people to go through testing, but the thing that we need to remember, because we're going to be looking at the temptation or the testing of Christ, which is a significant uh, event in the life and the ministry of the Son of God. The thing the Scripture tells us in James chapter one verse thirteen is that God never tempts anyone to sin. Okay, because God is is perfect and holy. And He will allow people to be tested, but He will never test or tempt anyone or lead anyone into sin. I think it's interesting that in the model prayer that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 6, He he prays, you know, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But God does allow, like I said, Adam and and Eve to be tested. We know that Job was tested uh, by the very same adversary. We know that, you know, of course, Job, Passed the test. His faith was demonstrated and he proved how faithful he was to God. But then also, we know that uh, uh, others were tested. We see in our scripture lessons in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, we're watching as the children of Israel, the people of God, are being tested in the wilderness. God led them into the wilderness that they could be directly tested. And the faith, their faith in God would be tested. And of course, we see that for the most part, the Israelites have failed uh, as they continue to gripe and complain about, um, of, about the provisions of God. But what about this tempter? This is the first time that he's introduced in the gospel. And we, you know, we are all, of course, we're all familiar with the devil. I don't mean that you like him. I just say that, uh, you know, we know the devil. His name is uh, Diabolus uh, from the original language, which means the slanderer. The accuser, that's who he is, that's what he's about. Of course, we know him by his name, Satan, which in the original language means adversary. And we know the origin of this adversary, this diabolos, this Satan, this tempter, if you will. He originally was a, a high-ranking, glorious archangel by the name of Lucifer. We tell, we're told in Isaiah and Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Who, was, who had the uh, unimaginable, distinct honor of being there in the very presence of God on that great celestial throne room, if you will, and, and there in the very presence of God, and yet he fell in sin, driven by his own pride to elevate himself to be like God. And as a result of that sin of pride, he was, he was cast down from heaven to earth by God out of heaven along with a third of the angels who became demons as we know them now. And so you know the devil has been active all through human history. And he's always been a part of of the ultimate plan of God. And so it's interesting because as we look now, as we look at the the temptation of Christ as we know the testing of Christ as it's given here in the Scriptures. And I think it's interesting because we find the, the account of the temptation of Christ given to us in the three synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But it's interesting that that we don't find it in the Gospel of John. And I know some of you in, in the evening Sunday evening adult equip hour have been walking through the Gospel of John with uh, uh, my son Tim. And I understand you all have a great time with that. But it's interesting, John doesn't mention the temptation, but as you've been, I'm sure, made aware of, John doesn't focus so much on the humanity of Christ as he's, as he is, he's exposing the deity of Christ. And so a temptation account wouldn't have so much to, to do with his gospel account. But it would with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, particularly with Luke. And so as we, as we think about it, we left off in chapter 3, where, you know, before the genealogies, of course. We, we saw Christ as he was being baptized. We, we saw the celebration of the inauguration of the ministry of, of Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, And it was a glorious occasion. At at the Jordan River as John the Baptist is baptizing and Jesus comes and and, and he pretty much tells John. John didn't want to baptize him because he felt like he needed to be baptized by Jesus. But you remember as Jesus was baptized and the the gospel account describes Christ coming up out of the water. It talks about how the Spirit of God came down in in the likeness of form of a, a dove, if you will, in the way of a dove and settled upon him. And, and how this booming, authoritative, divine voice came from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The voice of God. So we saw it in that manifestation of, of the, the Holy Trinity. The, the God the Son, God the Spirit, and God the Father being displayed. And, 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 and all of that occurred. But, but it is, it's interesting to see how short-lived the inauguration of the Son of God was. There was no follow-up band, there was no procession into Jerusalem, there was no, you know, celebrations and singings and, and hallelujah courses and everything. That he's here, he's here. He was baptized, that occurred occurred with the manifestation of the Holy Trinity, and then immediately we find Jesus being taken out into the wilderness to be tempted. And we're gonna be looking in chapter four, verses one through thirteen. At, at this very interesting and I think powerful uh, exposition of, of, of this intense time in the life of the Son of God. So I want you to understand that as you see the temptation of Christ unfold here, understand that, that Jesus is being tested. And, and it's not that, not that He has just inadvertently, haphazardly found Himself In this situation, this is a deliberate design of God. And and the testing that is occurring is to demonstrate the perfection of Christ. And in this temptation, we see that His perfection endures severe testing. Is He who He claims to be? Can He fulfill this unique calling upon His life? as the promised Messiah, Son of God. And so, before we start in the Scriptures here, I want to just take you back to Hebrews. It was mentioned in our uh, uh, part of our responsive reading in our worship guide. And, and first of all, I want to take you back to Hebrews chapter 2. I want to put this temptation into context to help you and I to appreciate the absolute essentiality of what Christ was going through and Why? So in in Hebrews chapter 2, if you'll first look with me there in verse 14. Hebrews 2 verse 14. And if you don't want to turn, you can just use those blanks for notes in your worship guide and just jot it down go back and read it later. And and, and this is what the writer of Hebrews says in verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Christ, likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, Diablos, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham, and that would include us by faith spiritually. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, speaking of you and I, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. And then, of course, in chapter 4, we read verses 14 through 16, but I want us to focus on chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus. Who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. In order for Christ to qualify as our Savior, as our High Priest, as our Mediator, He needed to demonstrate that He could relate to us. And He was. He was fully man, as we understand from the teachings of the Scriptures and the doctrine doctrine of, of, of Christ. He was fully man. And, and and his humanity. He was fully man. Fully God. But his humanity enabled him. To experience. Temptations very much like you and I. He could identify with, with us. Yes he was spirit. He possessed the Holy Spirit. But he was also absolutely human. In flesh and blood. As the writer of Hebrews made it quite clear. We have a savior hallelujah we have a a high priest hallelujah we have a lord who understands us who can relate to us he's not some distant cosmic mystical deity who has no idea what it means to be human all the way from birth or even before Because he was a fetus. He was born. I mean the whole human experience. And that's important. Because in his time of temptation. He demonstrated his ability to resist temptation. And to preserve his perfection. Even in dealing with the physical appetites of humanity. That you and I know ourselves. So now back to Luke chapter 4 verse 1. Then Jesus, this is after the baptism then the manifestation of the Holy Spirit and all. Then Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's important because we know back in chapter 3, verse 22, it talks about the Holy Spirit coming upon him, lighting upon him. But, But listen, Jesus is fully human, but he is filled with the Spirit of God. He is directed by and moved by the Spirit of God. The same as you and I when we are filled with the Spirit of God, as Paul tells us to to pray for in Ephesians 5.18, that we be filled with the Holy Spirit. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is in control. And He is the director of our lives. In this case, it says, Jesus then, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit, which is God in the Spirit, Into the wilderness. And you may recall we gave a little description of the wilderness. This is not the place you want to go and have a picnic. This is a region of a very barren and desolate portion of the southern part of Israel. That uh, craggy cliffs and hanging boulders and you know snakes and lizards and all of that. In fact Mark in his version of the temptation went on to say that he was out in the wilderness with wild beasts. Just to make it a little bit more foreboding, if you will. And he was there being tempted, because he's not by himself, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. In those days, he ate nothing. In other words, Jesus, you know, taught a lot about fasting. Though he never commanded us to fast, Jesus assumed that in the intensification of our prayer life, that we will have times where we'll want to fast to give more focus and direction to our praying. So he was there and for 40 days I think it was funny because that was one of my grandson Asher's favorite expressions he always liked to say 40 days and 40 nights because he borrowed it from the Bible. So anyway for 40 days the Lord was without food so he's fasting he ate nothing and afterwards when they had ended he was hungry and the devil said to him if you are the Son of God, command this stone. Probably pointed to just one of the many boulders, rocks, and says, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, let me point out something here. Jesus didn't start getting tempted at the end of the 40 days. It wasn't like Satan was sitting around saying, 36, 37, 38, you know, 40. Okay. He was tempting him the whole 40 days. He's not wasting a minute, ladies and gentlemen, because Satan has an agenda too. He knows who this is. Right there in uh, verse 3, when Satan says, it's in your translation, probably like it is in mine, if you are the Son of God, better translate it, since you are the Son of God. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, listen. Satan knew who Jesus was. He had no, there's no doubt in his mind who he was. The demons knew who Jesus was, as we'll see in the Gospel accounts. They, so he's saying, look, since you are the Son of God, you know that and I know that, Jesus. And I know you're mighty hungry because I've been watching you. you got, you got flesh and blood. Satan's a spirit. Go ahead. You can do it. So, so he's tempting him to, to misuse his power. But he's not only tempting him to misuse his divine power that Satan fully is aware that he has, but he's also tempting him to distrust the love of God. I don't know about you. Go without eating for 40 days, get a little hungry. And we saw the Israelites. It's so interesting to see the parallel between Jesus' temptation and the Israelites in the wilderness. It wasn't long when the Israelites were out in the wilderness and there were no fast food restaurants or places to get food that they began to, you know, they began to question. They would question God's faithfulness. They questioned God's love. They questioned God. Why has He brought us out here to die? We'd rather go back to Egypt and be slaves again. And so, Satan is playing on this. If he can get Jesus to distrust and to doubt God's love, then he might be able to manipulate him to misuse his power. Go ahead. You see that big rock there, Jesus? Just imagine a big steaming hot loaf drizzled with butter of Jewish bread. Smelling the aroma. Oh, you can turn it into the biggest loaf of bread you want. So Satan understands physical needs and he knows he's tempting Jesus to to doubt God's love and to misuse his power. But I want you to see the response of Christ. And folks, understand the significance, and we'll touch on this later, but understand the significance of the Word of God when we are engaged in spiritual warfare. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 18, when he describes the, the, the armor of God in dealing with spiritual warfare. And he talks about, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's our defense. That's our offense against the devil. And you'll see the Son of God understood the significance. Jesus knew the significance. Because he's quoting Scripture, and it's interesting, because he goes back to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, and we see that parallel again but with, the, with the nation of Israel. In verse 4, Jesus answered and said to him, It is written... In other words, God has said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Our sustenance ultimately depends not on what we can put in our mouth. That's what God was wanting to get across to the Israelites as they walked and journeyed through the the wilderness. Listen, it doesn't matter. If there's not a hamburger stand or, you know, a Jewish kosher food stand around every corner, it doesn't matter if there are not fruit trees in sight that you can see. Listen, all you've got to do is trust in the Word of God. I'll feed you, but your ultimate existence doesn't depend upon food or water or any other thing that we may try to bring into our lives. It's interesting as we move further, we're looking at the temptation beginning again in verse 5. That when it comes to comparing Matthew and Mark, I mean uh, uh, Luke and Matthew, that, that Matthew switches the order of the final two temptations. And that's probably because Matthew is more stringent in terms of following the chronology, whereas Luke is more thematically oriented. But either way, they're the same temptations, just offered in different order. Mark, however, is on the brief side. He, that Mark, the Gospel of Mark, not Mark twelve thirty over here. I'm just kidding, bro. But anyway, he, his version of the temptation said, he was tempted, okay, let's go. <laughs> but not Matthew and Luke. They want to give you all the details, which I'm, I'm grateful for. Because we see that the perfection of Christ endured the testing related to physical appetites, But also we see that the perfection of Christ endures severe testing as it relates to pursuing the perfect will of God. Satan is smart, smarter than me, smarter than you. He's cunning. Don't forget, he was an archangel created by God. And so he's got a brilliant mind. And he understands the scheme of things. And so as we look in verse 5, it says the devil taking him up on a high mountain. And you see that Jesus is now at the beckoning of, he's allowing himself. At any point, I'm sure he could have just said, that's enough, I'm out of here. <laughs> because he is the son of God. He never relinquished the authority that is his. But he understands the significance of going through the complete succession of the temptations. So he lets Satan, take him up on a very high mountain, Now remember, he's still fully God, fully man. Satan is a divinely created supernatural being. Okay? So I'm standing up here with bifocals that I can barely see text in front of me. They have supernatural vision enabling them to see beyond probably what you and I could see if we went up on Mount Mitchell or one of the high mountains in the area and looked out. So I'm just telling you that so you'll understand the temptation. In verse 5, Then the devil taking them up on a high mountain... Showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. In other words, in that time period. And we're talking primarily the Roman Empire. So they're both seeing nations. They're seeing empires. Maybe they're seeing as far as the Far East and and, and Western Europe. I don't know. Maybe they saw us Native Americans over here chasing buffalo or whatever. But the fact is, Satan is saying, look, see it all. All the nations, all the kingdoms. And he showed you all in a moment of time. Verse 6, and the, and the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory. For this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. Okay, and just stop there for just a second. Because Satan, he's so shrewd. He cunningly offers Jesus a tempting alternative that's full of half-truths. Half-truths. Because the Bible tells us clearly that Satan does have power in the earthly realm. In fact, in John 12, 31, he's described as the ruler of the world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, he's described as the God, little g, of this age. Folks, understand, Satan has power He has control over the evil, wicked, sinful, fallen institutions and governments that are in charge of the world today. Hence, dictators and and anarchy and, and all of that. The horrendous things that we see going on in the name of government today. Well, Satan does have power. And he does know that the Scriptures have already foretold particularly the messianic psalms psalm 2 and other passages of scripture where god the father is saying to god the son you will have all you'll have, you'll rule all the nations i'm going to give you and, and ultimately god will christ will come back and he will establish his reign and he'll rule over all the kingdoms of the world but To get to that point, he knows he's got to walk through a very menacing, trying, harassing, frustrating, earthly journey, dealing with unfaithful, fickle human beings, teaching, you know, hours upon hours upon hours, demanding schedules, healing people, enduring ostracism and rejection by the religious community, and then Finally, being arrested on trumped up charges and thrown into a kangaroo court, betrayed by his disciples, and then beaten nearly to death, hung on a cross. And Satan says, and I'm paraphrasing, hey, Jesus, I can can give you a shortcut, buddy. You don't have to go through all of that, I can give you the kingdoms. They're mine. I'm wearing them right now. Caesar, he's just a puppet in my hands. All you got to do is bow down and worship me. You won't have to go through all that 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 lies ahead of you. Take the shortcut. He's tempting Christ to abandon the perfect will of God. And of course we know as we look at the verse 8 Jesus's answer to that temptation again it goes back to the word of God Get behind me Satan for it is written you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve Deuteronomy 6:13 And so you see Jesus rebuffs this offer by Satan to abandon the will of God To fulfill the perfect will of God. Because you may recall, Jesus had already said that for him, he says, for me. In John chapter 4, you remember when Jesus went into Samaria and encountered the Samaritan woman at the well and the disciples had gone into town to get some food. Jesus was tired and was there at the well and had the encounter with the lady, the, the Samaritan woman. And then they came back and they, you know, Jesus was talking about he, he already had food. This wait a minute, where'd you go get food? <laughs> we, we went into town and got food. You've been here at the well. And that's when Jesus says, my food is to do the will of the Father, the one who sent me. So you understand how important the will of God was? God the Father was was to God the Son. That's why he was here. That's what he thrived on. And he made it clear to Satan. God's word says you will not bow down to anyone except the Lord your God. And so again, Satan is rebuffed. And the perfect Christ, his perfect perfect will to do the will of God the Father is, is, is intact. And so... Then we move on in chapter 4, verse 9. And Jesus is still at, 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 at the control, if you will, the manipulation, if you will, of the devil. The devil's not through. He's, you know, he's determined he's going to try every angle to cause Christ to stumble. So look at verse 9. Then he, the, the devil, brought him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, in other words, since you are the Son of God, eh, just throw yourself down from here. They were probably perched on the southeast side of the temple complex, the Herod's Temple. A massive, massive structure. In fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that probably they were on a portico at the southeastern tip of that massive wall looking down on the Kidron Valley far below some 450 feet below and Satan says look you know and I know you're the son of God throw yourself down now Satan is already seeing that Jesus is using the word of God with authority to rebuke him so you'll see his tactic changes a little bit now. Because now he's deciding he's going to use some scripture. And he's going to try his hand at it. And so he's quoting out of Psalm 91 that we were reading responsively from. In our responsive reading. Pertaining to the Messiah. That was one of the messianic psalms. So he's going to use some scripture here. And he, he says, for it is written. Sounds pretty religious, doesn't it? shall give his angels charge over you to to keep you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone scripture says it Jesus look at there go ahead put God through the test he's already promised it you just go ahead and jump. You know, your daddy is not going to let you splatter on the pavement below. It's in the Word. And He is in the Word. And it is a messianic promise from God the Father to His Son, the Messiah. But understand the context of that psalm only applies to when the Son is doing the will of God the Father. And understanding that, God is saying to the Son, if, if when you are doing my will, wherever you go, whatever you do, I am protecting you. And my angels are available to minister to you. And we know that was the case in the life of Christ. You'll see it in a little bit. Where God dispatches angels to minister. I think about in the Garden of Gethsemane where an angel was dispatched in that awful time of agonizing prayer that God sent an angel to minister to. So sure, but Satan takes the word of God out of context. You see folks, that's how cults get started. That's how heretics make a name for themselves. They'll use just enough scripture to, to catch unwary biblically illiterate Christians, or non-Christians they don't care, as long as they can get you under Satan's snare they'll throw out a little bit of Scripture here, a little bit of Scripture, taking it out of context enough to say, well, you know it is the Word of God, and it must be something to it, and they'll, they'll even throw the name of Jesus in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, my goodness gracious, that's got to be Christian, right? Now go and read what the Mormons really believe and teach and profess. So Satan is twisting the scriptures. And Jesus again rebuffs him with the word of God. As we see there in verse 12. Jesus answered and said to him. It has been said. You shall not tempt the Lord you're God. You see, Satan was trying to get Jesus to act presumptuously upon God. If he had jumped from that cliff side of the temple complex, plunging himself 450 feet down towards the pavement, he would have been presuming upon the will of God. At that moment, the moment that he leapt from that cliff, High perch. The will of God the Father would have broken from the will of God the Son. He would have been out of the will. Now, devil knew either way he was a winner. Had Jesus jumped, the, the devil knew. He would have won either way. Had he, had he jumped and God the Father let him plunge down and splatter on the pavement below and killed him? then guess what, folks? He couldn't have died on a cross for the sins of sinful humanity. Or if he jumped from the cliff above and, and, and plunged down and, and then God given in and said, all right, I'll rescue him. Well, he's already broken the will of God. He's disqualified himself as Savior. So Satan knew, all i got to do is get him to jump because then I will have accomplished my purpose and he would have been totally disqualified, this perfect Christ would either be dead or imperfect, no Savior, and Satan would have continued to rule in domain. Jesus was quoting from Deuteronomy 6, 16 there. In verse 13 it says, Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The devil wasn't whipped. He's disappointed. The devil wasn't done. This was not the last temptation of Jesus. This was just the beginning. Jesus was barraged by demon possessed people. You know that. As you go through the gospel account, you see that. Satan was constantly hounding him, tempting him, trying him, all the way to the cross. He didn't give up. There are practical applications that you and I can look into this and see. You know, when it comes to our own satisfying our own physical needs, Satan, and, and I don't mean this in a demeaning way. I will say that because Satan is not omnipresent, there's probably none of us here that's been tempted by the big boy, if I use that expression. I mean, he's saving himself or you know, these high ranking rulers, high ranking authorities, you know what I mean? He's got plenty of minions, demons. If you're tempted by a spiritual being, more than likely it's a demon. Okay? And they're spiritual beings, they have access to you. They have access to your mind. They have access to your 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 very emotions. Don't think that you're immune. You no, know, 1 John 4 4 tells us that, you know, you are, of, you are of God, little children, and you have overcome them. For greater is He who is in you, the Holy Spirit, than He or they who is in the world. They don't run over us, they don't rule us as children of God. You understand that. You cannot be demon possessed when you're possessed by the Spirit of God. You understand that. I hope you do. But you sure can be demon harassed if you become caught up in the flesh and you begin to sin and don't repent of your sins and you begin to follow the path of the world even as a child of God you're opening yourself up to the deceptions and the attacks of Satan you understand why it's important to be confessed up and prayed up and all your sins repented because when you dare try to live life in partnership with unrepented sin, it's like leaving the back door open and living in a jungle. But they cannot control you and possess you. They can harass you. So what I'm trying to say is, as we go about life, we have physical needs. We have need for food. We have, uh, you know needs for shelter, clothes, you know, there are physical, biological forces at work, sexual needs, uh, emotional needs. We have all kinds of needs. And we will be tempted. You'll be tempted to to take shortcuts. You'll be tempted to distrust the love of God. You'll You'll be tempted to distrust the faithfulness of God. But go back to the Word of God. And remember what the Scripture says. For instance, when it comes to your physical needs, don't worry, Jesus says. We talked about that in Christian Grace Group. There's no need to worry about what you're going to eat, drink, or wear, or whatever. That's going to be provided. Did not the Lord tell us, Paul said in Philippians 4, 19, My God shall supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He loves us. He's faithful. He'll provide and so, we have to be careful. We don't want to fall subject to sinful alternatives to the will of God. Because I promise you, brothers and sisters, Satan will tempt you when you are seeking to do the will of God and God impresses upon your heart a path for your life. The devil is always going to try to get you to take a shortcut. it's choosing... A career path, or an educational path. You know, Satan said, take shortcuts. Don't work hard. Cheat. Everybody's cheating, you know? And, and you know, you're looking for the right spouse, the perfect mate for, you know, and, and, you know, you know, that God is saying, I want you to find a godly Christian that you can spend your life with and invest your spiritual journey with and, and be, you know, equally yoked. And Satan said, I You don't have to worry about all that. If they're good looking, rich, take them. Doesn't matter what they believe. Take the shortcuts. Satan will offer all kinds of alternatives to the will of God. I think about old Job. You know? Well, go back to Adam and Eve. They had choices. Satan was saying, you know, eat of the fruit. God said we shouldn't eat it. If we eat of it, we'll die. Die! You surely will not die. Look, God knows that you'll be like Him. So, look, don't you want to be like God? Yeah, shortcut. Just bite that apple or tomatoes. Tim points out. Job. He was offered a shortcut. You know, his wife came to him, and he was in absolute misery, lost his children, him, his possessions, everything. His wife. I believe Satan put his wife up to it. I know women. Satan could use your husbands too, okay? But I believe it, I believe she, she was speaking by the devil. And said, Job, tell us, don't go through all of this. I've read the rest of the chapters, boy. Listen, just curse God and thank goodness Job resisted. And ended up a better man. Hey, Jonah. Jonah had alternatives. God said, I Want you to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel. Jonah says, oh, Satan says, Go to Tarsus, go to Tarsus. Take the shortcut, take the shortcut. Jonah says, I'm going to Tarsus. I'm not going to Nineveh. Got on the boat, went and took a nap. Next thing he you know, he's in the belly of a whale, in the depths of the sea. So Satan will do that. I think about Great men and women of faith like Jim Elliot and, and, and his missionary partners and they went into the you know, God says go into the, the depths of the Amazon in South America to this this barbaric tribe, you know, headhunters, Alka Indians and, and share the gospel. Now Satan would say, Guys, guys, hold it. You're up here in Illinois, near Chicago, you can get good jobs, you can get a good comfortable church to minister to. Don't go dragging your families down there. Of course we knew. Jim Elliot didn't choose Satan's shortcuts to leisure and comfort and pleasure, but he faithfully followed God. It cost him his life. But do you know, ultimately, out of that great tragedy came a great work of God. Those same barbaric Alcanians became genuine converts to Christianity. I remember hearing Greg Laurie talk about Billy Graham. Of course, he was real popular, you know, when his... Evangelistic ministry is going worldwide. And Satan was offering alternatives from people from Hollywood. Billy, you can be a tremendous actor. Man, your face recognition, people, they'll come to watch you act. People from Washington were appealing to him. Billy, you'll make a great politician. You can represent our party. Oh, who knows, you may be president of the United States. I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful that Billy Graham had the faith to resist the shortcuts that Satan was offering him to popularity and fame and riches. And so we have to trust God and lean upon Him. And then also finally, you and I as Christians will be tempted by the enemy, by our flesh nature to presume upon the Lord's care. You know, our basic prayer as a people of God, just like Jesus taught us in the model prayer, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, Father, Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And, and resist those opportunities where Satan will put before us ungodly schemes to try to manipulate God. We're here to do His will. He's not there to do our beck and will. And you know that televangelism out there today is steeped in these heretical, rampant movements that are are challenging people and, and inviting people to name it and claim it. To presumptuously look to God and say, God, I want to be rich. And you owe me. They'll tell you that. All you got to do is name it. God owes it to you. You want a bigger house? Look, you're a child of God. Just tell God. He owes it to you. Folks, God doesn't owe us anything. We owe Him everything. Don't get the formula backwards. And that's exactly how Satan was attempting to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is not too low that He won't try to tempt you and me. We will face temptations, but we have a Savior who understands. As Jesus demonstrated, the greatest defense we have against the enemy is the Word of God. Psalm 119, 11 says, Your Word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against God. Folks, you ought to know the Word of God. I don't mean from Genesis to Revelation, every, every verse, but know the pertinent Scriptures. Because Satan is not going to always, or his demons, or the worldly forces around you, they're not going to wait until you have a copy of the Word of God. They're going to watch when you don't have a hard copy. Or you can't get to your phone. Be able to go back to Him with the Word of God. And know that the Word of God says in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He'll make your path straight. Know that the Scripture tells you when you come under temptation, know know in your heart that the word of god says no temptation has overtaken you except such that is common to man but god is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear but with the temptation he will provide a way by which you may escape it don't come to god and say nobody has ever been tempted like this this is why i gave in don't tell god The devil made me do it. Don't tell God I just didn't have a choice. He's already told you in His Word. We have a Savior who knows what we go through. And He's provided a way for us to resist the devil. In James chapter 4, James says, Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil. Did you get that? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I'll tell you one thing that Satan's crowd, and I'm talking about demons and the anti-God world establishment around us. When they get, begin to mess with you, to try to tempt you, to cause you to stumble and fall. The thing that they despise is a child of God who is solidly planted in the hand of God by faith and who carries in their heart the Word of God. You to see the devil run like a scalded dog, you get a Christian to start quoting accurately the Word of God and meaning it. And he'll say, oops. It's kind of like that one of the zillion television lawyer commercials. You know, where the, <laughs> the lawyers for the company are trying to get you to sign, you know, to cave in and, you know, settle for their settlements, you know. And then they find out that you got such and such eternity. They say, well, we're out of here. (laughs) When the devil finds out that you are truly a child of God. You stand on the Word of God. He folds up his demonic calendar and he says, I'm out of here. No need for me to waste my time on this person. Jesus withstood temptation and resisted it to demonstrate the perfection of his calling as the Messiah of the world, but he also endured the temptation to set an example to show us that you can, you can stand the fires of temptation and maintain your faithful stance as a child of God. And to that, ladies and gentlemen, I say amen and amen.